What's up, everyone? Welcome to the latest episode of Note to Scene. This week, we got new music from Architects, August Burns Red, a radio rundown, and a deep dive on Versa Emerge and the infamous Fueled by Ramen Paramore conspiracy theory. You can listen to the official Note to Scene radio show over at 94.3 The X in Colorado every Saturday night from 8 to 10 p.m. local time. If you want to check it out, you're not in the area, you can download the station's app. Just search 94.3 The X in the App Store and tune in this Saturday. As always, you can listen to the songs mentioned during this episode on the Note to Scene Spotify playlist. And if you have any comments, questions, or requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. Alright, so let's get started. Architects have released a new song called Dead Butterflies. It's the third single from their upcoming album, For Those That Wish to Exist, which comes out on February 26th through Epitaph. The track is a ballad of sorts and potentially one of the softest songs Architects has ever written, but I love this move, even if I'm not super crazy about the song because I know that their fans are still going to eat it up regardless. This is how you pivot your sound as a band. The three songs they've released from the album so far have all been with a purpose, and this one's purpose is to say we're going to be more than just a metalcore band. We've grown and we're going to write whatever the hell we want to, and it's going to sound damn good. Dead Butterflies is a statement, and consider it signed, sealed, and delivered. I was actually able to hear the new album this week, thanks to a listener who I'll leave nameless, but they know who they are. All I can say is that this album is truly something special, and it's going to change a lot for this band. At the end of next month, we will begin our two-part deep dive on the story of Architects, so be sure to stay tuned for that. In other new music news, August Burns Red have released a new song titled Standing in the Storm. doesn't look like it's part of any new release, so I'm assuming it's just a B-side from the album they dropped last year, Guardians. I mean, if you're an ABR fan, you've had a hell of a last 10 months or so. A new album, new Christmas EP, a system of a down cover, and now just a new Lucy. It's cool to see a band just dropping new music and not adhering to the old school structure of only releasing new music when you have an album to put out. Standing in the Storm is a fairly straightforward ABR song, although the bridge does feature some variants of clean vocals, which is something the band's fans are still getting used to. They dropped a cover of Chop Suey late last year, and there were a ton of cleans in it. It's funny, I have a buddy back home who is a diehard ABR fan, and he texted me after this song came out and was like, I don't know how I feel about all these cleans, and I just had to laugh. I mean, the scene will literally never change. Heavy bands making even the slightest moves towards a not-as-heavy sound will always create a big debate. But despite the controversial bridge, any true ABR fan will without a doubt enjoy this song. Alright, on to this week's radio rundown. So, this week on our all-time low tracker, we have Monsters at 26 on Top 40 Radio, up over 13% in plays. Number 3 on Alternative Radio, where they're down 5.3%. And overall, number 81 on the Hot 100, which is 11 spots down from the number 70 spot they were at last week. Unfortunately, it's dropping a bit in streams, but I'm still not overly concerned yet because of how it keeps increasing in plays week to week on Top 40. This isn't a streaming hit, so the streams are going to come as a result of the radio success. 
Most top 10 hits these days are carried by streams and radio has to eventually catch up with them. Like 24K Golden Smash hit Mood was blowing everyone out of the water and became a Hot 100 hit long before it ever became number one on top 40 radio. So bottom line here is don't count this song out yet. When it starts dropping on top 40, that's when we should be concerned. MGK and Black Bear's My Ex's Best Friend is at number 17 on top 40, up over 5% in plays from last week. It's number 4 on alternative radio, where it made a huge jump from last week, up over 7% in plays. It's currently at number 40 on the Hot 100. It's going to be interesting to see how much that one can rise over the next few months. IDK Howe have officially begun their plummet off the chart, dropping from number two to number seven on alternative radio. But like I said last week, they officially have a number one alt radio single under their belt. So that helps them a lot at radio in general moving forward. Also, a new name that we're going to be watching on alternative radio, Nothing Nowhere's new single, Fake Friend, made a huge jump from 43 to 30, up over 112% in plays. His new album, Trauma Factory, comes out a week before the Architects album next month, so I'm going to knock out a quick deep dive on him. I think they finally have the wheels underneath this kid. I talked to a big member of his team who has stood by him through everything over the last few years, and it sounds like they have a good plan to execute, and this jump this past week is the first big sign I've seen that makes me think there might finally be something here. I love the single, and I'm really, really excited to hear the album. Over at Rock Radio, I Prevail continue their fall off the chart after getting blocked from a number one by ACDC and the Foo Fighters. Asking Alexandria's They Don't Want What We Want is at number 11, up almost 10% in plays. Foo Fighters, ACDC, Aaron Jones, and I Prevail have all begun their fall from the top 10, so I think Asking Alexandria are going to jump quite a few spots over the next few weeks as long as they can keep their momentum in spins going. But Bring Me the Horizon's Teardrops is at number 15 still, but it's up almost 12% in plays. I'm feeling really good about that one as well, thanks to quite a few tracks, like I said, ahead of them, losing steam and spins. And then finally, Architects sit at number 19 this week, up nearly 17% in plays. Again, this band is about to have the biggest moment of its career with their new album next month, and this song might be bubbling outside of the top 10 on rock radio in the U.S at that point. It's so cool to see. All right, on to our deep dive this week. So I did a poll on Twitter over the weekend asking people to choose the deep dive this week between Cute Is What We Aim For and Forever The Sickest Kids. Then someone replied saying a YouTuber named The Cozy Representative recently did dives on each of those bands. I had never heard of the channel before, so I looked it up, watched the cute episode, which is nearly an hour long, and I was completely blown away. It was so well researched and honestly kind of felt like a parallel universe where Note to Scene exists in video form without any snark or pessimistic takes. And I know that's a turnoff for some people when it comes to NTS, so if it is is, but you still like the info you get from the show, just go sub to that kid on YouTube. He does a hell of a job. And to anyone wanting the cute or FTSK dives, just go watch his videos on them. They're great. I didn't want to basically just take a majority of his cute video and make a podcast version of it. So that was Monday night and I realized I wasn't going to do either of those bands. So I regrouped and decided to just tackle the Versa Emerge dive now. I've been putting this one off because there is a shit 
ton of history to unpack from a band who only released one album, but after the response I got from last week's episode of the Drugs Deep Dive and how much people liked the Craig, Pete, Ashley Simpson love triangle drama, I figured I'd just pump the gas again this week and unpack the infamous Versa Emerge fueled by ramen paramore conspiracy theory. But before we get there, we gotta go through a surprisingly extensive one album band history, like I said. Alright, so before Versa Emerge, there was a post-hardcore band called My Fair Verona, which consisted of six members, a majority of which would go on to form Versa. They were Blake Harnage, Anthony Martone, Anthony Doan, Josh Center, and Nick Osborne. Apparently, their vocalist Ricky Shea caused a lot of tension within the band, and they broke up after only releasing one EP, which was called We Talk of Dreams. It was actually pretty heavy and didn't have that terrible of a production quality. Check out the song These Violent Delights, which in full is almost eight minutes long. Here's a clip. So after My Fair Verona, multiple members from the band formed Versa Emerge with new vocalist Spencer Pearson. They released one EP with Spencer called Cities Built on Sand, and it is so damn good. It's easily one of my favorite post-hardcore releases of all time from the scene. Spencer's melodies are untouchable, classic winding post-hardcore riffs, electronics that were honestly ahead of their time because this came out in 2006, and so many other underrated elements that came together to create one of the best post-hardcore EPs that nobody has ever heard of before. Here are a handful of snippets just from the title track to try and help those who haven't heard it get an understanding of how much ground they covered sonically.
Now, after this release, there's a lot of contradicting information online as to what members left when, but the TLDR of it is that there was a mass exodus from the band going into 2007, which basically just left Blake Harnage and drummer Anthony Martone. A quick sidebar on Spencer Pearson, he went on to form a band with members of Oceana and a couple other post-hardcore bands from the scene called Decoder, and they released one album on Rise Records. They later changed their name to Lead Hands, but never actually ever performed under that name, I don't believe, and then it all just crashed and burned. But that album is a very, very underrated post-hardcore album in the scene. But back to Versa. So instead of starting over with a new name again, Blake kept Versa Emerge and rebuilt the lineup. Aside from Sierra, the other key member, which we'll unpack throughout the episode, was bassist Devin Angelito. He was the first to join Versa following the initial lineup evolution after playing in the band Bury the Ashes. And next was Sierra. So the story goes that she auditioned for the band online and the band thought she was 18, but she was actually only 16. Sierra later explained that she had told Blake on a phone call, quote, I'm 17, my birthday is in a week. Blake took that to mean that she was 17 at the moment and would be turning 18 the next week. But in reality, Sierra was 16, about to turn 17. I mean, can you imagine something like that happening now? Absolutely not. But so after Sierra was in the band and they solidified their lineup again, they played tons of local shows and did small, low-level tours. They really hustled in late 2007 and throughout 2008. And in May of 2008, they self-released their first EP with Sierra called Perceptions. Personally, this is my favorite Versa release with Sierra. The song In Pursuing Design is the best Sierra song they ever put out. The whole release treads the line perfectly between pop punk and post-hardcore, incorporating tons of strings and electronic programming elements all around Sierra's massive vocals. It felt so much more polished and progressive than Paramore's first release, which was the unfortunate default comparison for any female-led bands from the scene, but it really felt like Versa was on to something special at this point. I hate that neither this or Cities Built on Sand are on Spotify, but here's In Pursuing Design. Again, it's hard to find info on what the band did throughout the rest of 2008, but they definitely toured anywhere and everywhere that they could, because after filtering through offers from numerous labels, including a couple majors, they ultimately signed to Fueled by Ramen near the end of that year. Anyone who was around during the late 2000s knows signing to Fueled By was a big moment in the scene. You were instantly in the same league as names such as Gym Class Heroes, Cobra Starship, The Academy Is, and of course, Paramore. 
And back then, we had label loyalty in the scene. If you're around now, you're seeing a very small version of it with Sharptone and the Metalcore roster they've been beefing up over the last few years. But back in the day, you found your label, and it didn't matter what they put out, you bought it. For me, that was tooth and nail in solid state. It didn't matter who they signed or what they released, I bought it. I have physical copies of so many one-off bands from those two labels who actually put out fantastic records, like a band called Sever Your Ties, who were like an electronic post-hardcore version of a mid-2000s rock radio band, or this dope metalcore band called The Ascendicate. My girlfriend was a Fueled by Ramen stan, and she wears that badge proudly to this day. We're getting ready to move, and she has a clothes bin that's covered in like 50 of the same Gym Class Hero stickers because she was on the street team. Shout out to all the street teamers from back in the day. And they would send her stuff to hand out at shows and events. It's wild to look back at how labels literally created dedicated enough fan bases that they manipulated them into being free labor. But so it's the beginning of 2009, first to emerge are freshly signed to Fueled by Ramen, and they headed into the studio with producer James Paul Wisner. James' history with the scene goes way back. He produced two of the Dallas Taylor era Under Oath albums, Cries of the Past and The Changing of Times, as well as Their Only Chasing Safety. He did the first Paramore and Academy Is albums, and more recently, he's done albums for Stand Atlantic, The Dangerous Summer, Hands Like Houses, and tons others. The dude has been around for a minute and knows how to make multiple genres sound fantastic. So Versa recorded what would be their self-titled EP and debut fueled by ramen release with James and released it in February of 2009. I like this EP much less than the Perceptions EP, but I still think it's better than Versa's sole album, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there was so much life on Perceptions, and the mix on this self-titled EP feels so subdued in comparison. The songs are a little more predictable, and it felt like Versa was already losing their flair. Past Praying For was the biggest song off this release, and it really just feels like a dumbed-down version of In Pursuing Design. This EP also featured a consistent string element in the song compositions that sounded interesting coming on the heels of bands like Panic of the Disco and Chiodos who were incorporating them into their own respective sounds, but the production here was so tight and polished that it felt forced and unnatural, especially on a song like Whisperer. But after this EP came out, they were on a tour with We The Kings, The Main, The Cab, and Therefore Tomorrow, which really helped to even further cement Versa into the Neon conversation, which is I think was a problem for them, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But they played a handful of festivals after that tour, including Bamboozle, and then cut some time out before Warp Tour 2009 to begin writing for their debut album. Then they spent that whole summer on Warped, which was exactly where any band who had just signed to Fueled By should be. After that, they went to Malibu and recorded their debut album with producer Dave Bissett. I'm just going to come out and say, no scene band should have went with Dave for an album. Don't get me wrong, the dude's resume is incredibly impressive and covers decades across multiple genres, but the closest he ever got to the scene besides this release were bands like Shinedown and Rev Theory, and then he was credited as a composer on Mayday Parades Anywhere But Here. But Fixed at Zero is the only direct scene album he ever produced, and it shows. He didn't know 
know how to serve that sound to their audience. Sierra has such an immaculate voice, but it feels way too out front in the mix on this album, and the external programming, like the string arrangements, feel even more forced than on their self-titled EP. I mean, there's a reason why this Versa album isn't considered a scene classic. The songs didn't stick. A better producer choice would have helped shift the direction in a way that served the band's sound much better. They obviously had a blueprint for what they were going for, as well as the tools to do it, but the execution unfortunately just never really hit for Verso when they needed it to. But so after the band finished recording the album in Malibu, they went out on the Boys Like Girls headlining tour for their Love Drunk album. Cobra Starship, The Main, and A Rocket to the Moon were also support on that run. From September through the end of that year, the band went through some more lineup turbulence, with some members leaving and Versa seemingly not wanting to publicly certify their replacements as full-time members. But despite the inner instability, the band was still gaining some momentum going into their debut album. In March and April of 2010, the band and Sierra received a ton of looks from publications, highlighting them as a band to watch that year. On April 27th, Fearless Records released Punk Goes Classic Rock, which Versa covered the Rolling Stones' Paint It Black on. Thanks to Playlist Culture, this is actually Versa's highest stream song on Spotify. So on April 28th, 2010, the band officially announced Fixed at Zero. They launched pre-orders and revealed it would be released on June 22nd, days before they headed out on Warped for the second summer in a row. Leading up to the album's release, they played Bamboozle, and according to their Wikipedia, they did a co-headliner with Icy Stars. I dug and dug, and I couldn't actually find any evidence that that tour actually happened, but if it did, I really liked that move. There are quite a few scene bands that could have been much bigger than they were if they were just marketed to a different audience with a slightly different image. I've always thought this about There for Tomorrow. Hopeless should have pushed them to the late 2000s post crowd, not Neon. I tweeted about this last night. They should have been opening for a Skylit Drive in 2008, not We the Kings. Same with Versa Emerge. I think Versa's image was fine once Fix came out in 2010, but they should have been hitting the road hard with Sleeping with Sirens on the With Ears to See and Eyes to Hear cycle. Same with Pierce the Veil on the Selfish Machine cycle. Icy Stars wouldn't have been the best move, but it would have definitely been better than still trying to peddle them to a neon crowd in 2010, which was dissolving at a pretty quick rate at that point anyways. But so Fixed at Zero came out on June 22nd, 2010, and it didn't even chart on the top 200. To give you all perspective on how big Versa was or wasn't after Warped that summer, they went out on their official album release tour and headlined with support from Ann Arbor, The Dangerous Summer, and Conditions. They played my favorite venue in Chicago, The Bee Kitchen, but it's literally a closet venue. Maybe a 200 cap. Versa couldn't even headline a House of Blues tour, but it was on this fall 2010 headliner where their beef with The Dangerous Summer happened. There are a couple sides of what went down the night it all happened, but the story goes that The Dangerous Summer had their set cut short at the New York date, and then an altercation between the now problematic ex-Dangerous Summer member Cody Payne and Versa guitarist Devin Angelito backstage Supposedly, Devin ended up throwing a beer bottle at Cody, and some sort of shoving match ensued. 
I was actually able to dig up the statements that everyone released around this thing, which made it really easy to document. So shout out to the internet on this one. So the Dangerous Summer was the first to make a statement. They said, we regret slash are pleased to inform you that the Dangerous Summer will not be playing the rest of the Vultures Unite tour. Thank you for the constant support through all of this. It means more than you could ever know. Once again, we are very sorry, but we cannot put ourselves and our fans around potentially dangerous situations. Cody Payne then subtweeted at Devin saying some wild shit. He said, Turns out he has illegitimate children on the way, and that can be very stressful, which caused him to throw a beer bottle. Two words, pull out, or planned parenthood. Don't support shitty music, please. AJ from TDS chimed in on his own Twitter saying, We got cut off short tonight and kicked out of the venue. Call us punk rock or just hated for trying. Then Sierra chimed in with a statement of her own to try and clarify the situation. About the Dangerous Summer situation. There has been some tension between some of the bands on this tour for multiple reasons. Some people did not show any tour etiquette, were disrespectful, and made comments that were uncalled for. As an opening band on a tour, you don't have any special privileges, and if your set has to get cut short by one song, then that's how it goes. It's not personal. We have opened up on many tours and knew our place as an opening band. When our set was cut, we did not complain, we never acted pissed off, and we never made rude comments to the headlining band who brought us out on the tour in the first place. We simply did our jobs and appreciated the fact that everything is a building process and you do what you gotta do. As a result of being a well-behaved opening band who has had their set cut plenty of times, played while doors were opening, driven bus routes in a van countless nights, and had small pay on top of it, we are now on our own headlining tour and we expect to receive the same respect that we have shown. If Devin was going to throw a bottle at someone, then he would have hit them with it. It's come to our attention that this is not the first time someone has gotten into a fight with a certain person in the Dangerous Summer. Versa Emerge, on the other hand, has never had a quarrel with any other bands. And when I speak of the Dangerous Summer, I absolutely do not include all of them. In fact, I love those guys. I spent time with them every day, had a lot of great memories on this tour, and I think they're a talented band. But it's unfortunate that some of them seem to not get along very well. We do not plan to stay on this topic. It's over. They decided to leave the tour, and we are moving on. We wish them the best of luck. And finally, the next day, Cody released a full statement through the Dangerous Summers account detailing how he saw things go down. He said, So, for the people who are open to the truth, here it goes. We normally pay seven songs each night. This is nothing new. Adds up to be about 23 minutes in length. We were usually allotted about 30 minutes, sometimes maybe just 25. Right before we were about to play our last song, the tour manager for VE comes on stage and tells us to get off right then and there, no saying goodbye, no last song, nothing. So we do. Brian and I went upstairs to the green room to get our catering and eat it. While eating, we were discussing how lame it was that our set was cut off again. This happened countless times on tour and only to TDS. None of the other bands were ever affected. Members of VE will actually openly admit that they cut our set simply because they, their manager and tour manager mainly, don't like us, and also say that none of the other bands on the tour like us either. Whatever, blah blah. 
While Brian and I are eating, their bassist, can't say I ever even learned his name, decided to jump into our conversation, screaming, saying that we are, quote, ungrateful pieces of shit, saying that, quote, no one likes our band, saying that, quote, we don't make any money. He went on for a while and I continued to eat, being that I don't really listen to people who are in bands that sacrifice dignity. After a while, I was just disgusted. He ruined my meal. So I tried to leave the room, and as I left, I said, quote, enjoy playing for 12-year-olds, since that is the general age of their fans. It is nothing to be ashamed of. Actually, yes, it is. This is when he threw the bottle. Missed, of course, being that he was drunk, angry, frustrated, etc., etc., threatened to kick my ass and had me cornered in the room. I made sure to put my hands on my hips and look as feminine as possible, to humor myself mainly. The tour manager for VE runs upstairs, pushes me against the wall, and tells me to leave. That was fine with me, but Brian wasn't really okay with the whole violence thing, so he pulled him off me. This is when their bassist desperately jumped on Brian's back, hoping to take him down. Yeah, not really gonna happen. I guess this is when VE, their manager, and their tour manager decided to make up the story that I was talking shit and then punch someone in the face. If you knew me, you'd knew I would never hit anyone unless I truly had to protect myself or someone else. As I was leaving the venue, I was explaining to everyone what exactly happened, and everyone else in VE just told me not to worry about it, and that he's just stressed that he has a kid on the way. I can understand the stress of expecting a child, and his words can be forgiven, but threats and violence against me and my band is not something I'm willing to put myself, my band, and my fans around. Hope you all can understand. Sorry for the horrible grammar, I didn't really want to invest too much time into this, just wanted to explain what happened, plain and simple. Love, Cody. So, for those who don't know, Cody created a ton of strife within the Dangerous Summer in and of itself, and was probably the main reason why they broke up the first time. In 2016, he was arrested and later sentenced to a year in prison for a felony burglary charge. Devin, on the other hand, is the source of the Versa Emerge Paramore fueled by Raman conspiracy theory, so, you know, do with this information what you will. But from here on out, Versa's activity becomes pretty sporadic. They did a few more tours, like the AP Tour in 2011 supporting drugs and Black Veil Brides, but they went through a bunch of lineup instability again at the end of 2010 and beginning of 2011. Devin left the band to be with his wife and kid, and they added a few touring members. They actually recorded an entire second album with producer Sean Lopez, who has a pretty sporadic history working with scene bands. But to this day, the album has never come out. There were random singles, and Fueled by Ramen seemingly acted like they were still behind the band and planning to put it out, but a fairly inactive 2012 gave way to 2013 when it was announced that they were no longer on the label. It's unclear whether they were dropped or managed to weasel their way out of their contract, but that unreleased Versa Emerge album is locked away in the Fueled by Ramen vault somewhere, and just like the unreleased Attack Attack album, I would put money on it never seeing the light of day. Near the end of 2013, they changed their name to Versa, released a couple random collections of songs, but nothing ever stuck, and eventually they announced that the name Versa was put to rest and they were going to release music under different names. But a year later, the Versa Emerge conversation roared back to life, when Devin, the guy who allegedly threw a beer bottle at Cody from The Dangerous Summer, released a statement that needs to be preserved in the scene Smithsonian. He called out his former bandmates, Fueled by Ramen, and Paramore. 
This is a massive statement, so buckle up. I would like to start this blog with, I am blessed for the good things that have happened to me and the bad. I want to touch first on the fact of the delay for my post. The last thing I am trying to create with this blog is drama. Drama is usually caused by overzealous people, people that have no lives, or people that are literally just sick in the head. I'm very happy with the point I am in life. It's crazy to think it's been three years since performing last with Versa Emerge. Yes, the Emerge still existed at the duration of me being in the band. So as you can see, it's taken me a long time to compose this. This isn't a bash fest. For anyone that has known me or met me longer than five minutes, you know that from the first second, I'm just real. I'm me and that's it. I'm more of a timid person at heart, but with things I am confident in, I hold my own. So that's all I'm going to be here. I've seen some other posts from past members in past years, and I can't quite say they were wrong in certain things that were said, but posting in frustration is never a way to clarify validity of a point. But everyone has their way of communicating, and that's fine. I started with Versa towards the beginning of 2008. I joined right as the original basis was leaving because he decided to pursue a school. Right in the midst of joining the group, we already had some labels contacting us like Rise and Victory. Your dream label per se when you're an aspiring hardcore band or whatnot back in the day, seeing as they were leading that scene with their plethora of bands. Of course, regardless of the deals, it was never something we personally wanted for the band as we saw the longevity of those bands were very futile and not promising, nor could they ever get us to the status we wanted to be in the music scene. While negotiations were being processed and the band had just released the Cities Built on Sand album, which I was not on, keep in mind, the band started facing some tribulation. Our original guy singer failed to say he could not be in the band anymore because of parent hindrance which was a load of shit, but whatever. The band pursued on. As you also know, our guitarist left the band. This had our heads in a pretzel and dealt with some drama, but didn't take long to get back on our feet. After many auditions for a vocalist, we finally came across Sierra. To be honest, the majority of the band did not see this as a great option. The audition was honestly not solid enough in our opinion to solidify a yes for me, but honestly it was more unique and I saw the true potential of her voice, which was more convincing than the others, and we needed to act soon before the idea of the band became irrelevant. So we grabbed up 16-year-old Sierra into the band, and this time we also picked up a new guitarist and went to the studio to unveil the new track, which at the time revealed little screaming. Now who remembers that shit? Ha ha. I guess that's especially funny to me because if you are able to play a track from our first album than a current track, it sounds nothing alike. I understand bands maturing through the years, but the differentiation of the albums is caused for many reasons which we will get to. At this moment of the release of the song, we had a booking agent and finally acquired a manager from New York. He was really shopping the song along for us and was getting such good feedback, so much good that the labels were coming in left and right. This is where the plague started to form. As crazy as it sounds, the band ultimately received from 15 to 20 label offers between labels like Hopeless, Science, and Tooth and & Nail, to combinations of labels like Sony Virgin, and so forth. 
Oh, how life changes. What a cock-sucking game the industry is. I found myself at these expensive-ass restaurants. I didn't even know what half the menu was, schmoozing with all of these label execs and whatnot, talking about our music, songs, gear, hopes, and aspirations. No matter how much I explain, it will never give you the full image of that world. But as time goes on, and we started narrowing down who we wanted to sign with, roles were starting to shift. I tell you flat out that the band did not function as a band. The writing was solely done by Blake and Sierra on occasion other than vocals. It was never something I was okay with, seeing as I always had a huge part in writing, yet there is just a sense of ownership when writing your own parts. I understood that Blake is an amazing musician and can write and play many instruments and style, but as a band, writing at some point should be shared understood that not everyone has pro recording gear at their houses nor have money for it but still who would have known that this was going to cause more problems in the future finally we met with the owner of fueled by ramen had dinner with him and was convinced that was the label that was the right fit this is where there is much speculation i can tell you that i feel signing with fueled by was such a mistake a 360 deal doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing if the band is going to be pushed. The more money the label makes, the more the band makes. Except, the label has a hand in every pot. I feel the band was signed to not create competition for Paramore. We were thrown on the back burner. Many opportunities that were given to Haley were not given to Sierra. The band never really even acknowledged our band. Tour ideas were all being thought of by the band, was finding more success over in the UK, and it just seemed like no moves were being made. We had great success with touring at first. We went out with We The Kings, Boys Like Girls, Cobra Starship, headlined in the UK, did Warped two years in a row, was filmed for an MTV episode in the world of Jenks. Yet the focus started to shift. As I stated before, we weren't a band. Members started to leave. Anthony was kicked out of the band, but I can still say to this day, his temper was big, but much of his words were truth. He didn't like the direction of the band. The band's focus started to become of the two who remain. Go figure. We even gained another guitarist after losing one, and then that guitarist left. Was there a specific reoccurring reasoning for the members leaving? There was. Like we spoke before, I'm mostly a timid person. I keep things to myself, give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe you can even say I trust too easy. I'm easily content. As all of my friends were leaving the band, I always had to reevaluate my choice in staying with the band. My choice of leaving the band was far more than one reason. Towards right before leaving, I met the girl of my dreams, which is something I never even thought would happen so early, and I'm so thankful. And we made, at the time, one of two baby boys I'm also so grateful for. He needed a dad in his life, and being gone three months at a time was not being there. It would have been different if I was being paid enough to support my family. So that's what I was asked a lot. Would you have pursued the band further if you were paid better? The answer is yes, I would have stomached touring with them a bit longer. But money and being a father wasn't the only reasons. And let me state that the money was only there for the first EP that we released with Fueled by Ramen. $13,000, which when you're 21, that's a great lump sum of money. After that, I was begging for $1,000 a month to keep me afloat. We did get catering most days on the road, but other expenses always come into play. Even to this day, I never got paid royalties for being on any album. Our full-length record def surpassed 30 to 50,000 units, iTunes, and so on. Even after leaving, I was sent a quitting agreement that stated I could never say I was part of the band Versa Emerge. 
that I will never receive money from royalties or the merch that they sell with my face on it. This was the band that was supposed to be my best friends I traveled the world with. The band who, quote, understood that I had to be with my family. The two were always being flown out to write, asked to do interviews with just the two, and just having a female vocalist. You already know the show is about her. I was still receiving phone calls up until last year's taxes saying the band made money last year, so I owe in taxes. My two friends couldn't even make it to my wedding because one had a vocal lesson and the other had to go on a family trip. I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to be edgy, new, original. This was not the agenda they had in mind. Yeah, I could have continued to sit in the background, play my bass, and went back to the van and do it all over again. I could have continued to play bitch and drive the van home from New Hampshire back to South Florida while they got flown around to Cali. I could have continued to give my opinions and visions ignored. Instead, I wanted to be a father and a role model for my kids, to teach them the true beauties and poisons of the world, to take care of my wife who worked so hard raising our kids and dealing with a man who was working his way up from ground zero again. Worked two jobs just to keep my family afloat after our apartment flooded in a freak accident not caused by us. A man who never asked from a dime for anyone, unlike other pitiful people who couldn't succeed in a band. And yet I stand firm, with aspirations to manage a band to success, knowing how the industry really works now. At the end of the day, I have love for everyone that has been mentioned in this blog. We learn to live and live to learn. It has all made me the person I am today. I'll probably never know the true intentions of certain people or situations. I'll never understand why I was taken so advantage of and manipulated. I will never be given the money I deserved, but I will be given the satisfaction of knowing I made the right choice to leave when I did. Because at the end of the day, one day, these bands will not be in style or what's in it for the future. Music is becoming more and more fabricated, and the money will be given to someone else. But you will have to start at the bottom again and join real life. But I, I came back to reality and paved a way for my family. Thank you for reading. I'm sorry for any type of grammatical mistakes made or slang. I wrote from my heart on a spontaneous whim. I did not go through all the logistics of events that happened throughout the band. This was just a general overview and to finally get off my chest so I can continue on with my life. And if anyone asks the story, I can point them here. Thank you, and thanks for the ones who have always kept in touch and stood by my side and just be an open ear. So, there you have it. The guy from Versa Emerge who tried to fight the nut job from the Dangerous Summer thinks Fueled by Ramen signed Versa and purposely sabotaged them so they wouldn't create competition for Paramore. So... What do we think? Well, let's look at what we just unpacked in this episode. Versa Emerge was never a big band. In fact, they were far from it. The main problem we addressed during the dive was that the music, especially once they got into album mode, didn't stick with people. Fixed at Zero will never be considered a scene classic. Underrated? Sure. But was the band not getting opportunities because the label was actively steering them away? Or was it because people actually just weren't listening? Devin saying the album Def surpassed 30 to 50,000 units. First off, that's a big gap, dude. There's a big difference between 30,000 and 50,000. Second, you put that statement out in 2014. Are you saying that that's what it cleared in the four years it had been out? If so, that's awful, and there's really no way that recouped in any reasonable time frame. Second, the album didn't even break the top 200 when it was released, meaning it literally only sold a couple thousand units first week, tops. 
And speaking of contracts, let's talk about 360 deals for a second. Devin actually did a pretty good job at explaining them. Old school record contracts usually purely dealt with the rights to music. 360 deals became very popular over the course of the 2000s because the music industry was declining in overall revenue and labels wanted to make more money. So they created the 360 template, which is where they take a percentage of everything a band sells, from the music to merchandise and so on. The other side of the coin is that the label agrees to push the band harder and open more doors for them. Hypothetically, 360 deals can be a good thing, and on paper they always seem attractive to young bands, but in practice it just typically doesn't pan out well. Here's what I think happened to Versa Emerge. They had hype going into being signed, but the hype didn't stay. And if the music isn't sticking, it doesn't matter how hard the label pushes it. I think Fueled By saw this, and much like any other label, when a band isn't making money, took prioritization off of them and placed it behind the bands that they had that were selling, such as Paramore. There's no way in hell Fueled by Ramen had this sinister plan to sabotage Versa Emerge so that they wouldn't create competition for Paramore. One of the greatest common quotes from the music industry is, record labels don't care what you buy as long as you buy it from them. A label's purpose is to make money back on their investments, and bands and albums are their investments. And the money hungriness only gets more savage the higher up you go. If Versa was actually blowing up, Fueled by would have wanted to make that money. Take Sonny Moore for example. The industry rumor about him is that after From First to Last, he was signed to Atlantic for his solo career and they wanted to turn him into the next Gerard Way, allegedly. But he wouldn't let them. He wanted to do EDM. So he put out his solo EP called Gypsy Hook and the label didn't push it worth a shit. They barely ever even acknowledged it existed. Go watch the music video for Mora. It was made with like 50 bucks. And that was supposed to be a major label product. But when his first Skrillex song started blowing up, Warner, who owns Atlantic, went, oh shit, we have this kid. The music stuck and now Skrillex is one of the biggest DJs of all time. I'm not getting every detail of that story right and it's not very descriptive because I'm just rambling off the top of my head now, but my point is, if Versa was making Fueled by Ramen worthwhile money at any point, the label would have backed it. Could Versa Emerge have received bigger opportunities? Sure, but so could have any band on any label. Bands and artists get shelved and dropped all the time because they aren't selling. Versa Emerge wasn't near enough of a force that an elaborate industry blackballing was plotted against them. But thanks to Devin, I can bait people into listening to my podcast in 2021. And that is a wrap for this week's episode of Note to Scene. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any requests for deep dives, email me at notetoscene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it very much. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.